Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them, although the doors were locked. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, and see my hands, and put, on, put out your hand, and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is the word of the Lord. All right, well, happy Easter, everybody. It's uh, good to be up here. I'm really excited that this week we have a chance to look at this particular passage. Uh, We've been preaching through the book of John all month long, all winter long, and we're going to keep doing it after this week, so come back and hear some more. But for today, we're looking at the end of this book. We're looking in particular at this passage where the resurrected Jesus encounters Thomas, one of his closest friends, one of his disciples. And this morning, as we look at the passage, I've got one simple goal in mind. My goal is to make you doubt. Now, of course, I don't want you to doubt the passage, right? I wouldn't be a very good pastor if I was wanting you to doubt the truth of this story. But but what I want to do is make you doubt your doubts. I want to make you question your skepticism this morning. I want to at least put that question into your head. This account is the last thing that John writes before he says, all these things are written so that you may believe Jesus is the Christ. In other words, John says all this stuff is laid out, this whole book is laid out as evidence before you. It's something that you should consider. It's here to challenge us. It's here to challenge our skepticism and and even challenge our understanding of the entire world. He wants us to see. John wants us to see this event. Christ's death and resurrection as a historical fact, as a moment that took place in history. He wants us to examine the evidence. So I think we should take him up on that challenge today. And that's what I want us to do. Really quickly this morning, I want us to do three things. I want us first to examine the evidence. Let's look at the story. Let's, let's see what's in here. And then secondly, I want us to understand the meaning of the resurrection. Once we see the evidence for it, let's try to figure out what the resurrection is supposed to mean. And then finally, we need to respond to the case. So let's examine the evidence, let's understand the meaning, and then let's respond to the case. Let's start off with the examining thing. And I want to acknowledge, right off the bat, first thing, the resurrection is difficult to believe. It's a hard thing to believe. But I think there are at least two reasons why we should give it some consideration this morning. There are at least two reasons why we should think about it, and that is the skepticism of the people in this account. And the second thing is their response to it. So their skepticism. Let's talk about that first. 
If nothing else, the thing we learn from this story with Thomas is that people back then were just as rational and just as skeptical of a resurrection as we are today. If you remember the story, we read it, we read it just now. If you followed along, you, you heard what was going on. But here's the story. Jesus rose from the dead. He died, and three days later, he returned from the grave alive and well. And he appeared to his disciples. But Thomas wasn't there. We don't know why. But on this Sunday, Jesus appeared to his disciples, and Thomas was, he was late for church that day, right? He, he, he missed something big by showing up late. He missed it. And then they said, hey, while you were gone, Jesus, hey, he's back alive. <laughs> and and what, is, what is Thomas's response? He says, verse 25, Unless I see his hands, the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand in his side, I will never believe. He's obstinate. He said, I, there's no way I'm going to believe that. I will never believe that. Well, why not? Well, historically speaking, okay, there are some differences between our experience of life and the experience that a Middle Eastern man in the first century had. His experience of life is a little different from ours, right? We have the internet, we got smartphones, we got indoor plumbing, we got some great things. But there's one thing that we have in common, at least one thing that we have in common, and that is when people died back then, they stayed dead, just like today. Death is permanent. When somebody comes down with a case of being dead, that's it. <laughs> you don't come back from that one. And that's important. We need to think about that, because a lot of times when we pick up a book like this and we look at Scripture, we say, well, you know, those were simpler times. Those people were superstitious. They were gullible. They were likely to, to fall for a story like this. But that's, that's just patently false. People who lived in the Roman Empire were no dumber than we are today. Look, our philosophy majors in college are studying the same philosophers that they studied, right? The, our IQ hasn't risen dramatically since that point. If anything, let's be honest, folks. <laughs> if there was a time traveler who was going to go and compare the, 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 our lives back then, you know, looking at our current election cycle... <laughs> They might come to some conclusions that maybe we're going in the wrong direction. So we can't be snobs about this, is what I'm saying. We can't be snobs just because, we can't just assume that just because we live today, we are automatically more enlightened. Just because we live now and they lived then. Resurrection was no more likely then than it is today. And when you factor in some of their religious beliefs, you might think it's even less likely. Thomas was a Jew. The disciples were Jewish men. The early followers of Christ were all Jews. And you know what? If there's one thing the Bible is pretty bullish on, it's don't worship anyone other than God. You never bow down to anyone other than God. Jewish people were very committed to that idea. You don't bow down to angels, and you certainly don't bow down to other human beings. The Bible's filled with all kinds of warnings. And yet, immediately following Christ's death, for some reason, 
massive numbers of people started to follow him. So the first reason we want to uh, question the resurrection today is, you know, we see that these people were skeptics just like us. But secondly, we have to think about how they responded. We have to give some consideration to how these skeptics responded. There's no way to argue that immediately following the death of Jesus, people began to believe for some reason that Jesus was God. The importance of that can't be overstated. Immediately following his death, for some reason, massive numbers of people began to believe that he was God. One atheist historian put it this way. He said, if this had not happened... If this event, whatever it was, had not occurred, if Jesus had never been pronounced a divine being, his followers would have remained a sect within Judaism. Just a small group of Jews who believed that Jesus gave the correct interpretation of the Jewish law, that he was a good teacher. And then Gentiles would not have converted to follow Jesus any more than they converted to other versions of Judaism. And if the religion hadn't then become a predominantly Gentile religion, it wouldn't have seen such steady and remarkable growth so that over the next 300 years, Christianity became enormous. If Christianity were not large and viable by the beginning of the 4th century, the Emperor Constantine would almost certainly not have converted to it. And if Constantine hadn't converted, masses of former pagans would not have accepted faith in his wake. The empire would not have become predominantly Christian. The Christian religion would not have become the official religion of the state. The Christian church would never have become a dominant religious, cultural, social, political, and economic force in the West. We never would have had the Middle Ages, the Renaissance, the Reformation, and modernity as we know it. And most of us, he says, would all still be pagans. If Jesus hadn't been worshipped as God... That stuff would have never happened. But it did happen. So how did that happen? How did these Jewish skeptics believe it? I think there's only one plausible explanation. I think it's because it happened. It happened. And you know what? It happened publicly. It happened where lots of people saw it. If you look at 1 Corinthians, Paul, writing even before the book of John was written, He says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me. Did you hear that when I read it? Verse 6, he says, He appeared to more than 500 people, most of whom are still alive. Now, scholars will tell you, even the most skeptical scholars will tell you that this was written within 10 or 15 years of Christ's death. And here's Paul saying that there are 500 people who saw this firsthand, and, and don't take my word for it. They're still alive. Go talk to them. Now, they're not alive now, so don't go looking for them. They're not alive anymore, but they were alive then. And he says, go talk to them. Or in Acts, when we see Paul presenting to the king, he makes his case. He tells the whole story, and here's how he concludes. I am persuaded, he says to the king, 
that none of these things has escaped your notice. For this has not been done in a corner. Christianity is, is not like, I don't know, some of these other, you know, it's not Joseph Smith finding mysterious golden tablets all by himself in upstate New York. Christianity stakes its claim on public events with an abundance of eyewitnesses. And the people in 1 Corinthians, they're not the only ones mentioned. Scattered all over Scripture, you find the names of insignificant people to the story. A couple weeks ago, we read the story of Christ's arrest. And in that story, it tells us that Peter cut off someone's ear. And in John, it tells us his name was Malchus. But Malchus isn't a part of the story. He doesn't show up again. In Mark, Simon, it tells us Simon of Cyrene was the man who carried the cross. And then Mark says he was the father of Alexander and Rufus. Now, who are Alexander and Rufus? Why would they be included in the story? They're not a part of it. They weren't around. But what he's saying is go check the facts. These people are still around. Go talk to them. This is not the way you tell a lie. Maybe if you're writing 100 years later, maybe if you're writing 200 years later, you can go back, you can tell these stories. But but you can't do it 15 years later. You can't say these people are, are witnesses if they're still around. You know, if you make these claims, tons of people would would rise up and contradict it. But they didn't. They believed. And you know what? They didn't just believe a little. You ever think about that? They didn't just believe a little. They believed a lot. That these early followers of Jesus, most of them were persecuted. Many of them were killed for their commitment to this message. So if you don't believe the resurrection, that's fine. It's hard to believe. I understand that. But it's not enough to just dismiss it outright. You've got to come up with some other explanation for how this stuff occurred. People don't come back from the dead. I get it. (laughs) They don't. It just doesn't happen. But if anyone ever did, wouldn't it be like this? Wouldn't everyone who witnessed it, wouldn't they have to tell people about it? Wouldn't they be passionate about the fact that they saw it? And wouldn't that event, wouldn't it have to change the entire course of history as we know it? Wouldn't it be argued about forever? Wouldn't it continue to be debated? Well, that's John's point. That's why he says that. He says, these things are written so that you might believe. And it's hard to believe. But just don't dismiss it outright. At least examine the facts. So those are some of the facts. They're not all the facts. There's a lot more you can read, but we got to keep going. So let's talk about why this is important. What is the importance of the resurrection? Here we are, point number two. Now, a lot of people, when they think about the resurrection, it's a hard thing to believe. But you might hear someone ask the question, you might be asking the question, isn't it enough just to believe in Jesus? Do I really have to believe in this resurrection thing? Isn't it enough just to learn what Jesus had to say? Learn his teachings and try to just live by those? Well, no, it's not. Because the event of the resurrection gets right at the heart of what's unique about Christianity. 
it goes right down to the center of what the Christian faith is. Because if the resurrection occurred, if this is true, if this is an event in history, if the resurrection actually happened, then it means that the aim of Christianity is not moral improvement. Let me repeat that. If the resurrection happened, it means that the aim of Christianity is not moral improvement. It's not about good ideas. It's not about becoming a better person. Yeah, Jesus was a good teacher. He had good things to say, things we should study and learn. But being a Christian is not about just learning those ideas. It's not about following his rules and achieving some state of enlightenment. It's not about finding inner peace. No, here's what John says. He says, these things are written so that you may believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Okay, he says, not you would have life in his teaching, but he says that you would have life in his name, that you would have life in Jesus, in who he is, and in what he did. And that's why this encounter is such an important one. That's why this story of Thomas is so important for us, because Thomas knew what Jesus taught, didn't he? Thomas walked alongside of Jesus. Thomas camped out with Jesus. You know, Thomas was Jesus' buddy, and he agreed with Jesus. He followed him around for his whole ministry. He was one of his passionate supporters. And there's plenty of people like that here in Boston, are there not? A lot of people who are generally okay with what Jesus has to say, or at least what they think he probably said, right? There's people who are okay with him. Maybe even people who go to church occasionally. Maybe, you know, people who would, who knows, call themselves Christians. At least if the census came around, you know, they check the box, Christian, not other or none. But this story tells us that being a Christian is not just about belief in a set of moral propositions, but it's in being a Christian is about believing a historical fact. Right? That's what we see. Verse 27. Look at it with me. Jesus, when Jesus comes to Thomas and he says, put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve but believe. Jesus looks at Thomas, the guy who agrees with everything that he said, and he says, don't disbelieve, but believe. What he says is Thomas was not a doubter. We talk about that, right? Doubting Thomas, that's how we know him. But Thomas's problem is not doubt. It's flat out unbelief. He doesn't believe. And here's why this is such a big deal. Here's why I want to build up this distinction for you, the difference between believing in Jesus' teachings and believing in the resurrection. Jesus, when he walked on earth, he did teach a lot. He taught who God was. He taught what God wanted for our lives. He taught that there, was a, there is a God and that God has a design for this world. He taught that God created this world to be good and that he had a standard of what that meant. And if you want to read about that, I would recommend Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You read those books, but specifically uh, 
the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. And Jesus, when he's teaching, he says, everything can be summed up like this. God's requirement is nothing short of perfection. Matthew 5, 48, it says, you must therefore be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus told us that's essentially what, what God's law says. That's what the Bible teaches. That God's design for the world is a perfect world with perfect people. A place where there is no pain, where there's no sin, where there's no sorrow. A world where people are completely honest and entirely selfless. A world where we're all the kinds of people that we know we're supposed to be, but we're not. Perfect. Now Jesus, when he, he taught, there was another part to his message, though. He said, don't think I've come to wipe out God's law. He said, I haven't come to abolish the law of God. I have come to fulfill it. That's the point of the resurrection. The point of the resurrection is that Christ has come and fulfilled God's law. Christ has come to fulfill God's law. But what does that mean? What does it mean to fulfill a law? Let me just use an example uh, from today, right? Uh, street cleaning. That's starting up next week. Who's excited? Street cleaning? Yeah? Um, so street cleaning, you know how the, that, that works, right? Don't park here first and third Wednesday of the month. Now, how can you keep that law? How can you fulfill that law? Well, 11 o'clock at night on Tuesday, ah, get up, put your shoes on, walk outside, move the car to the other side of the street. You're fine the next day. You fulfilled that law. There's also another way. You can ignore it. You can forget about it. And then the next morning, you come to see the street is empty. <laughs> your car's not there, right? So then what do you do? Well, you got to get your friend to give you a ride. You got to take the bus. You got to walk to the tow lot. You got to pay the guy to get your car back. And then you have your car. And you have fulfilled the requirements of the law. You can either honor it and keep it, or you can break it and pay the penalty. But either way, once those things are done, you have completed the requirements of the law of parking. <laughs> well, Scripture tells us when Christ fulfilled God's law, he did it in both ways. He positively obeyed it. He kept the commands of God. He lived a perfect life, the kind of life that none of us can live. In perfect obedience to God, he was perfect as his heavenly Father was perfect. But he also paid the penalty. He also paid the penalty for law-breaking, even though he was innocent. On the cross, when he died, that's what that was all about. He was paying our penalty for breaking the law, not his. When Christ died, that was the moment when our penalty was paid. And the resurrection is the proof that he accomplished his mission. The cross is, is the payment. But the resurrection is the receipt. It's the proof. So the message of the resurrection, the point, is that it's finished. When we place our faith in Christ, there are no longer any barriers between us and God. Let me say this again. Christianity, 
doesn't depend upon a philosophy. It doesn't depend upon a command. Christianity is not the five things you need to do to encounter God and be a good person. Christianity doesn't hinge on living by a certain set of guidelines. It hinges upon a fact of history. It hinges upon the resurrection. Christianity is nothing without it. Paul, he says, if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless and you are still in your sins. If Christ's message is only one about how to live a good life now, then Christians, more than anybody else, should be pitied more than anyone on earth. But if it's true, if the resurrection is true, then this is the greatest news that anyone has ever heard. If the resurrection is true, it means that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Son of God, come to deliver us from death, that he is not just this one guy, but he is what the Bible says is the firstborn from the dead, that he's the beginning, that he is the proof that he's coming back to restore all things, to restore the brokenness and the evil and the injustice and the inequality in this world. Jesus is coming to fix that. The resurrection means it's not about what we have to do, but it's about what he has done. And that's why, and, Jesus, and Thomas, he totally gets it, right? That's why when Thomas finally does see Jesus, when he does realize the resurrection, he doesn't say, wow, didn't think I'd see you again. You know? He says what? He says, my Lord and my God. That's the importance of the resurrection. It means that Jesus is God, come to bring life in his name. So how do we respond to that? That's the last thing we need to think about. You know, we've seen some of the evidence. We've talked about what it means. So how do we respond to this case that's laid out before us? Verse 29, Jesus says, Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus, in this very moment where he is showing Thomas his wounds, says it's not necessary to see my wounds. You actually don't need this for faith. Now you might think, well, that's easy for for you to say. (laughs) Sure would be helpful. But why would this be any different? You know, why would this historical event be any different than believing another historical event? I mean, just take the Civil War, for example. You know, do you believe the Civil War happened? Yeah, of course, right? Well, why? Because, well, because history, because there's books, because there's eyewitness testimony, because archaeology confirms it. Well, you know, I challenge you, look at the resurrection and, and see. I think all those things are, are true. It's just as, you know, you can affirm it just as much in those same ways. That's kind of what John is saying here, right? Check into it. See if you can find any evidence to the contrary. Figure out a a better reason for all this stuff or come to faith. Those are the choices. But, you know, I don't think that's totally fair. 
Because facts, that's not all we have. The history is not all we have. This story is not about Thomas being persuaded by facts, is it? This is a story where Jesus shows up and relates to this guy in his unbelief. Think about the story. There was an eight-day window between when Jesus showed up to the other disciples and when he showed up to Thomas. What would that have been like for Thomas? Here are all these other guys that he trusted and knew were so convinced that this had occurred, but Thomas hadn't seen it. What would it have been like for that week for him to wander around with these questions and you know, wondering why he didn't see Jesus? You know, the anxiety of it, the fear behind it, wondering, could, could they be right? Could that possibly be true? And as he was asking that question, as he was considering those things, Jesus reveals himself. He shows up. In the midst of his unbelief, Jesus reveals himself to Thomas. And now, unless this is my last sermon ever, that's not going to happen for us today, right? Unless Jesus walks in through the back door right now and, and we're going to wrap this whole church thing up, this is probably not going to be how it happens for us. But if the resurrection is true, it does mean that Jesus is alive. If the resurrection actually happened, it means Jesus still can reveal himself. And he still does. Well, how does he do that? How does Jesus reveal himself? Well, one place he does it is in the church. As I was reading through this passage, at the end of the week, something occurred to me. That the, this last verse, the Greek, that you may have life in his name, it's actually a, a plural. You know, if you're from the South, it's that, that y'all might have life in his name, right? It's, it's this idea of a group of people. This letter is written so that people will find life together in his name. That skeptics will come into the church and find life in Jesus. If you want to see Jesus, the church is where you're going to see him. The place that scripture calls the body of Christ. And here's how you're going to see him. You're going to see his spirit at work in the lives of people. You're going to see him transform people. Change their desires. You're going to see his power at work in the lives of people. The church, it's the place where you see Jesus. It's the place where you see him redeeming sinners from every tongue and tribe and nation. People who have no business being in a room together, and yet here we are. The church, it's the place where we have this, where we can taste and see that God is good, that his promises are true for us. He does it through the church. And let me just say, not by just coming to church on Easter and Christmas. <laughs> you know, this might be a selfish plug, but, but by being a part of the church, by becoming a part of God's people, this is where you'll see him. If you're, if you're considering whether this might be true, come back next week. Go to a community group in the middle of the week. Meet the people that know Jesus as their Savior. He does it through his church, and then secondly, he does it through his Holy Spirit. Jesus reveals himself through his spirit. Paul tells us that God sends his spirit into our hearts to testify, to cry out 
Abba, Father. To say God is our Father. Men and women, He sends His Spirit into their lives. To anybody, anyone in this room who's willing to ask that question, can it be true? Anyone who's willing to just wonder, Jesus, can you save me? Can you be known? That's the kind of question Jesus lives to answer. And so I want to invite you today to doubt your doubts. I want to invite you to see what the resurrection means. It means on your own, there's no way to know God, to earn your way. It's not dependent upon you getting your act together. It means that this world really is broken. The reason you feel that way is because the world really is broken, but it is destined for redemption. It means on the cross, the work has been completed. It's finished. You can come to God. See what it means. And then look at the evidence. Look at the proof. Look at the church that, that, has, that, that tells you the tomb was empty. Christ is risen. Look at the meaning. Look at the evidence. And finally, I just want to invite you to look and see Jesus. I want you to stand next to Thomas and look at him and declare with him this morning, my Lord and my God. Let's pray. Father, I'm so grateful for the news of your resurrection. I'm so grateful that, that you don't ask us to have blind faith. You don't ask us just to trust you, but you give us proof. Lord, that you rose from the dead. You gave us the receipt. You built your church and you changed the world. And we stand here 2,000 years removed and we look at a planet that has been transformed by this message. Lord, it's a planet where there's still a lot of problems. It's a world where there's still a lot of pain. But God, I pray that we would see that a big part of that is our own sin. And our only hope is to come to you and confess it. Father, I pray for anybody here this, this morning who had the bravery to come to church this Sunday but uh, didn't know what they'd expect, didn't know what they'd get. Lord, I pray that you would show yourself. I pray like, like Thomas in his doubts as he's questioning and, and as he's unbelieving, I pray that you would show up in their lives and prove yourself to be God. I pray they'd experience your spirit and the power of your church. And Lord, I pray for us, the believers in this room uh, who've come here this morning to celebrate and worship you. I pray, Father, that we would remember the good news that it's finished. We pray in his name. Amen.